Hi, this is Brent White. Welcome to my podcast. I preached the following message on January 7th, 2018. This is the first part of a series of six sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And in today's sermon, I mostly talk about the verses leading up to the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus' words about prayer in verses 5 through 8 of Matthew chapter 6. I talk about how it's clear from Jesus' teaching that our Father promises to reward us when we pray the way Jesus teaches us to pray. We probably don't talk much about this kind of reward, but I want us to focus on that a little bit. And I also talk about what an amazing privilege it is for us to be able to call God our Father. We almost take for granted because of Jesus that God is our Father, that we are his adopted children through faith in Christ. But I don't want us to take it for granted. I want us to to think about what it cost God in order to make us his beloved children. So I'm going to read the scripture now, which comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, we put the words of scripture, if you're visiting with us, we put the words of the scripture on the screen. If when Libby's reading, you can't understand what she's saying. <laughs> oh, many of you, uh, many of you have seen this very funny meme that's been circulating on social media um, since Monday. <laughs> uh, it looks like this. If you made any promises in overtime, service starts at 9.30 or 11.15 this Sunday morning. And we could change ours to 9 o'clock and 11, but the, but the point is the same. The point is that many Georgia fans were undoubtedly praying, uh, especially in overtime uh, last Monday. And chances are that some of them perhaps made some promises to God. I will go to church, Lord, if you just let the Bulldogs beat the Sooners. <laughs> In overtime, this this is funny and I like it, although I hope you'll agree with me by the end of this sermon that this meme, however funny, represents some terrible theology, um, according to Jesus. But this meme is about prayer and it's fitting. And today at HUMC and for the next um, six weeks, we are going to be talking about prayer. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the, the prayer that Jesus gave to us as a model, what we call the Lord's Prayer. We sort of began the series last Sunday by looking at one of Jesus's parables on the importance of prayer. 
prayer, the importance of, as Jesus said, praying always and not losing heart. A natural follow-up question to that sermon is, okay, how do we do that? I get it. I know that prayer is important, Lord. Uh, I know that I should be doing it more often than I am. But how? How do we do it? And to answer that question, Jesus has given us today's scripture from Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at just the very beginning of the prayer. We'll come back to it again next week because I can't even say everything I want to say about the very beginning when we talk about our Father in heaven. But we're going to begin today. And I'm going to spend most of the sermon time talking about the four verses leading up to our Father in heaven. Because those four verses uh, Jesus uses to tell us how not to pray. So the first way not to pray, Jesus says, is to do it for the sake of any audience other than God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is a challenge to me because, as you know, a part of my job is praying in public. I don't think Jesus is saying anything is wrong with that, but just, you know, be mindful of the fact that that poses a possible temptation. It's hard for me to do anything in public without being mindful of people who are watching me. I try to impress people sometimes. I try to sound intelligent or I try to at least sound like I'm not an idiot. Or I try to give the appearance that I'm a deeply spiritual person. It's hard for me to do anything in public without this thought in the back of my mind. How am I coming across? How are other people perceiving me? How are they judging me? Because I don't want to be misjudged or wrongly judged. Do people like me? In other words, rightly or wrongly, I worry a lot about my audience. But when we pray, Jesus says, we have an audience of one and one only. Our Father who is in secret. In other words, our only audience when we pray is someone that we can't see, whose presence is not obvious to us or others. In fact, the Bible says That no matter what we do, we really only have one person in the audience that we need to be concerned about. Oh, how I wish I could be like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
I wish, I wish I could consider it a light thing to be judged by others. I wish I could say I don't judge myself. I wish I could just say the Lord alone is my judge. But if we could only live out that principle. Only the Lord, you see, is really in a position to judge us. Our father, you see, is not only in secret, Jesus says, but he sees in secret. He sees in secret. This means that he sees everything. He sees those parts of ourselves that we keep hidden or we try to keep hidden from others. So if when I pray, there's even a small part of me that's trying to impress people with my piety, with my wisdom, with my intelligence, if there's even a small part of me that's trying to win people over to my side, to get people to like me, to stroke my pride, to feed my insatiable ego, well, I may be fooling other people, but I can be assured I'm not fooling God. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows every sinful motivation in my heart, and he knows my pride better than I do. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, said that we Christians look down on primitive people who bow down to idols and who worship idols and who pray to idols because, of course, these idols are incapable of seeing and hearing. Our God, by contrast, sees and hears everything, including our deepest, most intimate, private thoughts and hidden motives. But Spurgeon asks, does that fact make any difference at all? In other words, do we live our lives any differently knowing that our God sees in secret? Spurgeon said, your God can both see and hear. Would your conduct be any, in any respect different if you had a God such as those that the heathen worship? Suppose for one minute that God could be smitten with such a blindness that he would not see the works and know the thoughts of man. Would you then become more careless concerning him than you are now? I think not. In other words, Spurgeon is saying we are already very careless uh, concerning him. Divine omniscience, which is the doctrine that God knows everything, Although it is received and believed, Spurgeon says, has no practical effect upon our lives at all. The mass of mankind forget God. He says, we are practical atheists. Harsh words. Do they apply to you and me? If so, how will we be different in this new year so that we won't be practical atheists? How will we live our lives differently knowing that we worship and believe in and pray to a father who sees in secret? And you might want wonder, um, if God knows me so well that he can see me at my absolute worst, that he can see the ugliness that I try so hard to hide from the rest of the world, that he can see how little I depend on him, how little I trust in him, uh, how minuscule my faith is despite the front that I put up for others. 
Why would he ever listen to me, much less respond to me, much less give me what I what I ask for in prayer? That's a good question, which I'll come back to in a moment. But first, I want to draw your attention to verse six. Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will do what will reward you. Jesus promises us a reward for praying in the way that he tells us we need to pray. Do you ever think about the rewards that Jesus promises us? If not, I am encouraging you to do so. Verses 1, 4, 6, 18, Jesus mentions a reward. Then in verses 19 and 20, he talks about receiving treasure. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus is talking about receiving rewards and he's talking about receiving treasure elsewhere in John 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Apostle Paul, who lost his freedom, his safety, his reputation, his earthly wealth, and eventually his life because of his faith in Christ. He could say that everything he lost was rubbish in comparison to what he had gained in Jesus Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, not simply the promise of knowing Christ in the future, in heaven, in resurrection, not, but, but, and not simply seeing Christ face to face in the future, which is going to be amazing, but knowing him in the here and now. That's so good, according to the Apostle Paul, that everything else that he has known in life is garbage by comparison. This is a part of what this abundant life that Jesus talks about means. This is a part of what this reward that Jesus talks about means. This is a part of what this treasure in heaven means. Now, granted, the treasure is in heaven It's not here on earth, but, you know, it's like having money in the bank. It's somewhere else, but we can draw upon that treasure in the here and now. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, to be clear, when the Bible talks about rewards and treasure and abundance, it's not talking about money and possessions or any kind of material blessing, although God may give us those as well in some cases. This treasure, this reward, this abundant life that the Bible talks about, that Jesus talks about, is about knowing Jesus more and more. It's about loving Jesus more and more. It's about trusting Jesus more and more. It's about learning to treasure Jesus above any kind of earthly treasure. It's about ta- it's about getting more of Jesus in your life, having more of Jesus in your life. So what is the ultimate reward? That comes to us when we pray the way Jesus teaches us to pray. By all means, we may have our prayers answered. 
By all means, we may find the strength to meet any challenge life throws our way. By, by all means, we may get that physical healing that we're praying for because we're sick. By all means, we may get the help that we need when we find that we're in a jam. And during this sermon series, I'm going to preach that we need to pray expecting God to do something in response to our prayers. Something that God would not otherwise do if we didn't pray. By all means, I'm going to be preaching that. And that's certainly a reward for prayer. But brothers and sisters, more than anything else, do you know what you'll get when you pray the way Jesus says to pray? You'll get more of Jesus. We'll get more of Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is getting more of Jesus enough for us? Is that enough of an incentive for us to pray? Is that enough of a reward for us to pray? Because that's the only thing that will satisfy our restless hearts, getting more of Jesus. And if we want more of Jesus, what is one guaranteed way to get more of Jesus? To pray. So how could we not do it regularly, often, unceasingly? How could we not have prayer at the very center of our lives? The good news, Jesus tells us, is that prayer is not hard. (laughs) Maybe that's not your experience, but bear with me. It's not hard in the sense that, well, let's look at how the Gentiles, how the pagans consider prayer in verses 7 and 8. Jesus says that they heap up empty praises, excuse me, empty phrases, because they think that they will be heard for their many words. Why do these pagans heap up empty phrases when they pray? Because they believe that they're only going to be heard by their God if they say the right words first, only after they've ingratiated themselves to their God. Uh, They've buttered their God up. They've won their God over through praise or flattery or repentance or promises of future repentance. Only after they've they've done this work will their God listen to them and answer their prayer and perhaps even give them what they ask for. In other words, the pagans believed that they had to first earn the right to be heard. And once they did that, God would listen to them. Are we so different? Because that meme that I talked about earlier, I'll go to church this Sunday and worship you, Lord. If only you'll just grant me this one request. Let the Bulldogs win this overtime victory over the Sooners so that they'll play in the national championship. In other words, God, I recognize that because of the way I normally live my life, I don't have any right to expect you to answer my prayer. Nevertheless, if you'll only do this one thing for me, then I'll change my behavior. I'll pay you back, God. I promise Isn't that the meaning of that particular meme? 
like the pagans whom Jesus mentions. We're trying to win God to our side. Jesus is telling us that we don't have to do that. In fact, we can't do that. Remember what I said earlier? God sees in secret. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows all that awful, ugly sinfulness within us. We are not fooling God and nothing we do can impress God, especially not some promises that we make to God, which are so often empty promises anyway, to live our lives for the better. Lisa and I um, rent our house that we live in, and we have a cordial and friendly, but definitely business-like relationship with our landlord. Um, we have responsibilities. We, we pay the rent on time. We pay utilities. We, we do the yard work. We keep the house looking presentable. Uh, we call Gary if there's something that <laughs> something that I can't fix because I'm not very handy, but we, I try. Uh, and the landlord, in turn, he lets us live there. Uh, he, he, he takes responsibility for major repairs. If the, if the furnace breaks or the water uh, heater breaks, he, he repairs that. He repaints the house. He's supposed to replace the carpet sometime. Uh, t- but he takes care of the major stuff. We take care of the minor stuff. We, we do our part. He does his part. Needless to say, I hope, we don't have a landlord-tenant relationship with our God. If I perform my duties, if I live up to my end of the agreement, then God's supposed to live up to his. That's the kind of relationship that these pagans Jesus refers to believed that they had with their God. Not so with us Christians. What kind of relationship do we have? Jesus tells us, pray then like this, our father, we are God's children. Think about what that means. My family and I saw the movie, The Greatest Showman last week, which is a fictionalized story of P.T. Barnum. And uh, the central conflict in that movie is Barnum's feeling of unworthiness to be the rich, successful person that he's become. He was born dirt poor. He came from a family of nobodies, and he certainly doesn't deserve this beautiful, rich wife that he married. And her father warns him as he's about to take her away to get married. He warns him that his daughter will eventually get tired of him and leave him, that she won't be satisfied with him, that she'll want more than he's able to give her. So throughout the movie, Barnum constantly feels as if he needs to prove himself to his father-in-law and to the rest of the world, to, to cultured society, to prove that he's worthy to be one of them, that he's worthy of love, acceptance, and wealth. Needless to say, I hope, that while a father-in-law's love may be conditional, I'm not sure that mine is, but you know, I, I get that it could be the case, a father's love 
isn't. Our Father has given us infinitely more than earthly love, earthly acceptance, earthly wealth. And the good news is that we don't have to be worthy of it. We don't have to do anything to prove ourselves to our Father. We don't have to pay our Father back. The Bible says that we are adopted into God's family through faith in Christ so that we can call God our Father. But adopted kids like me know that a parent's love for them is exactly identically equal to a parent's love for a natural born child. It's exactly the same. But regardless whether you're adopted into a family, whether you're born into the family, your status as a child doesn't depend on you, on what you do or what you don't do, right? I mean, I was adopted when I was a little baby. I had no say in the matter. And uh, I did not come with a, a money back guarantee for my adoptive parents. They were stuck with me. And if you were born into the family, it's the same way. Your parents are stuck with you. And here's the good news. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father doesn't depend on what we do either. It depends on what Christ has done for us. Consider, consider what it cost God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Consider what it cost God to give us the privilege of calling God our Father. Tim Keller puts it like this. The only time in all the Gospels when she, that Jesus Christ prays to God and doesn't call him Father is on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Keller says, Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a relationship with God as Father. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered forever. Jesus Christ bore all the eternal punishment that our sins deserved. That is the cost of prayer. Jesus paid the price so that God could be our Father. What does that mean? It means that God must really, really want to be our father. It means that he must really, really want you and me to be his beloved children. Are you a son or a daughter of our heavenly father? If you are, will you say amen? amen. Will you say hallelujah? hallelujah? And if you're not... I just, I need you to know this. He's offering you this morning. He's offering you the privilege of becoming a beloved son or daughter of God. And once you are nothing in this world, nothing beyond this world, nothing in this physical realm, nothing in the spiritual realm can separate you 
from our Father and His great love. Don't you want that? Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll come and visit us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a more traditional service at 11. Hope to see you there.